Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Welcome to this week's edition of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. I am once again your pinch-hitting host, Mark Polishuk. Uh, Dara McDonald is still on vacation. He should be back for next week's show, so you can all be spared uh, from hearing me <laughs> anymore. Uh, but on the bright side, we have uh, one of our usual uh, co-hosts here today, um, also from MLB Trade Rumors. It's Anthony Franco. How's it going there, Anthony? I'm good, Mark. Uh Ready for a lot less stressful next couple of days than you're about to have. So how are you feeling as our resident Blue Jays fan? Oh, I'm feeling optimistic. Big question mark. Uh, this Blue Jays season has been so up and down. Uh, I really don't know what to expect from this series. Um, I, you know, like there's been sort of a sense among Blue Jays fans that they caught a break in avoiding playing Tampa Bay in the first round. But that also seems to overlook the fact that Minnesota's been playing awfully well over the last uh, couple of months. So it could be a question of um, out of the frying pan and into the fire. But who knows? Anything uh, can happen in the playoffs. And that brings us to, I guess, our first uh, topic of today's podcast, which is simply that the postseason is underway. Um, We are recording this uh, before any of the games have started Uh, like any of the game one on Tuesday has started. So if anything truly breaking or newsworthy happens, uh, I'm afraid that won't quite be covered here. And uh, that actually could skew our first topic, which is just simply Anthony, who's your pick to win? Uh, Well, I picked the Braves preseason and uh, seeing as they've done nothing to dissuade me off of that by having like one of the greatest lineups of all time. (laughs) I stick with that. I have Braves over Astros, which is, you know, kind of a a chalk pick, but one that I feel okay about. Yeah. Uh, so we each had a look back at our preseason predictions. And uh, boy, talk about being off base uh, for a couple of uh, professional baseball writers. But uh, my pick of uh, Houston to win the American League pennant, that's still valid. So that's good to go. My pick of the uh, Cardinals to win the National League, uh, perhaps didn't quite hit the mark. Uh, some of my awards picks uh, at least were were pretty solid. So I'm at least um, happy about those. In terms of who I think might take it, I don't know. I might have to abandon the Astros, and I think I might go for, a, for an Orioles-Phillies World Series just simply uh, because that was the matchup back in 1983 when Baltimore won their last championship. Part of me just feels that the Phillies have another big run in them. And in terms of a team who's kind of done nothing to uh, to so any doubt, this might have a vague team of destiny feel for the Orioles. Now, that being said, it is the playoffs. Anything could happen. Any of these 12 teams could really sort of get hot and make a run. One team who is not going to be part of the playoff field are the uh, Seattle Mariners who uh, ended up being the odd team out of the American League West race and fell just short. And after the fact, Cal Raleigh was uh, pretty vocal about things, uh, just like sort of talking about how the front office has to, quote, commit to winning. And he also said how, quote, you see other teams going out, going forward, getting big-time pitchers, getting big-time hitters. We have to do that to keep up. Now, Raleigh kind of walked those comments back the next day saying, you know, like he didn't want to kind of imply that his teammates weren't good enough or whatever. But uh, I think it does speak to some of the frustration um, in the clubhouse and perhaps among Seattle fans in general about how this season 
could be perhaps a bit of a missed opportunity after they did so well in 2022. And now going into the off season, they certainly have a lot of questions to answer about how to take that next step and become a true contender. Uh, so I guess my question just first off, Anthony, uh, so Shohei Otani, is he going to solve all these problems? Uh, I mean, he would help, right? I mean, it's uh, their issue, I think, is that the lineup is just not quite deep enough. And obviously, you know, if you install a top three hitter in baseball into the middle of it, it looks quite a bit better. You know, I think they'll be in the mix for Otani. I, you know, would I pick them as the most likely landing spot? Probably not. It just feels like, you know, there are teams that I guess, as Raleigh kind of alluded to, that uh, have a longer track record of spending at the top of the market. And Otani is going to break the all time contract record in all likelihood by quite a bit, probably. And uh, so, you know, I mean, they do have a fairly clean long term payroll outlook. You know, I mean, they have the Julio Rodriguez extension, Robbie Ray and Luis Castillo are on the books. It's not empty or anything, but they do have payroll space to make a, a play at the top of the market. But We'll see if that's, um, you know, are they going to stack up there with the Dodgers or a Giants team that's probably also similarly anxious to get a star talent? Uh, we'll see. I don't I don't really see that. Yeah, part of the issue with Seattle as well is that, um, like, obviously, as you mentioned, Otani would check two big boxes for them in both as a DH only in 2024 and then as a pitcher going forward. Uh, but in terms of needs for the Mariners, there's right field and DH, given how uh, Chaster Hernandez is going to be a free agent. There's second base, which has been a problem area uh, since the Colton Long signing just didn't really work out. And possibly even first base as well, if they feel that uh, Ty France could be upgraded on. So if you're Seattle, maybe you can turn to a few different moves to sort of upgrade at several different spots, as opposed to a big splurge on Otani. Um, I will point out that the one conspiracy theory so i guess you could just call it a theory perhaps it's not a conspiracy uh for a lot of mariners fans is that their relative lack of spending last year was to sort of save up in order to make the big offer to otani this winter i mean again i don't doubt that they'll at least look into it that they'll try um it's just a matter of are they going to try as hard as the dodgers would be willing to try or the giants or even potentially the angels i mean it's I don't want to completely write off the possibility that he resigns with the Angels. I don't think that's likely necessarily, but he hasn't specifically said that he wouldn't go back to Anaheim either. So we'll see. Uh, but again, the Mariners would be in my top five to 10 landing spots for Otani, but I don't think they would be in my top three. Yeah, even finding beyond five teams who could be realistic candidates for Otani could be difficult just because he'll get such a big contract. Like his wrinkle of having a Tommy John surgery adds kind of another layer of uncertainty to it. So it'll be interesting. Uh, and Seattle will be in that mix, as we said, to some extent. Now, moving over to another club who did not make the postseason, uh, who weren't really in the playoff race, uh, the AL Central notwithstanding, are the uh, Detroit Tigers. And Anthony, you just recently uh, wrote the offseason outlook piece on MLB Trade Rumors about the Tigers. So you're the perfect person to chime in here. Uh, Scott Harris, Detroit's president of baseball operations, uh, recently sat down and had the end of season chat with reporters. And one of the many interesting details is that he noticed that there haven't been any talks and there probably won't be any talks with Eduardo uh, Rodriguez's camp about a possible contract extension. 
Now, uh, Rodriguez can opt out of his contract and he could walk away from uh, three years and $49 million left on that deal and look for something else in free agency. I would have to imagine he'll find something larger than that. But it's interesting. I just found it perhaps a little unusual that Harris said that they weren't planning to have any extension talks. Uh, perhaps this could be a sign that in the Tigers' mind, they're kind of expecting him to walk away. Uh, what's your take on it? So, I mean, Harris did kind of leave open the possibility that they would talk again if and when Rodriguez did opt out. He basically said that they weren't going to try to foreclose the opt out by tacking on another year or two before Rodriguez has that decision. I agree with you that in all likelihood, Rodriguez will opt out. I know that he invoked the no trade clause to block the midseason trade to the Dodgers. And so that led to some speculation that maybe he just loves Detroit and he'll take whatever is on the table. And I guess that's possible. But as you said, I, I think the three for four to nine is just light for what a pitcher like this can get. I would prefer him to Jamison Tyone or Taiwan Walker at the same time last year. Those guys got four years and around 70 million. I think Rodriguez could justifiably look for 80-ish uh, if he wanted to. And so I expect him to test free agency and you know maybe the Tigers will stay involved uh, once that happens. But if he leaves, I do think that Detroit is in position to spend on a different starting pitcher. Now, Harris kind of downplayed that a little bit and sort of did the GM cliche about we're going to spend to supplement our core. We're not going to spend to build our core. And that's kind of a, a typical thing that you hear from executives to um, somewhat justifiably, but also kind of lower expectations, I think, of the fan base. That's like, hey, we're not going to make a run at Shohei Otani or something like that. But I do think that they're in position to spend on a starting pitcher. Now, whether that's somebody in like the mid-tier range, like a Michael Walker or Seth Lugo, or a bigger swing at, say, an Aaron Nola or Jordan Montgomery. But the long-term payroll is pretty clear for Detroit uh, with the Miguel Cabrera extension coming off the books. They have a lot of talented young hitters. The infield is kind of in flux, but it's not a great free agent market for infielders. The starting pitching is good. Tarek Skubal should be an ace, but there are kind of health question marks with Egypt Skubal and Matt Manning and Casey Mize, and I think that they would do well to add some veteran stability to that group. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, just given how Harris has operated now in, in his, um, I guess it's been about a year since he was hired, he's been very cautious in his moves, which is understandable given how you know he was taking over a team that really seemed to be in flux, kind of everything just completely backfired on them in 2022 in part because they made a big splash in free agency and then just everything just kind of went south at the same time. So it makes sense that uh, that Harris and probably Tiger's ownership might be a little a little gun shy about immediately spending big again, uh, like whether it's re-signing Erod or bring in another big pitcher. You know, it, it was interesting in reading your Tiger's post, you almost seem to get more and more uh, excited about the idea of Detroit's chances for next year. They're sort of a, like somewhat of a sneaky underdog team. I mean, like in the AL Central, not the toughest division in the world. It's not really out of the realm of possibility if all of these guys start clicking for the Tigers about, you know, like a year or two later than they expected. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I went into the outlook expecting to kind of lump them in with the rest of the rebuilding teams. Like, okay, I've done Colorado, I've done Washington. Tigers are better, but they're sort of in that similar bucket of like, yeah, they're still a year or two away. 
And the more I looked at it, the more I was like, well, do they have to be, though? Because Spencer Torkelson came around in the second half and Riley Green had a good second season at the major league level. Kerry Carpenter's a middle of the order hitter. And they have Justin Henry Malloy and uh, Colt Keith, who are upper minors position players who didn't reach the majors this year, but hit well enough in AAA that they should be in the majors relatively soon. And so I don't like the middle infield. I mean, Javi Baez has not come anywhere close to living up to the $140 million contract. They've sort of patched things together at second base with Zach McKinstry and Andy Ibanez. It's not the most exciting group of infielders, but the outfield is coming along. They have, again, the starting pitching. I didn't even mention Reese Olsen the first time or Sawyer Gibson Long, but those guys also have shown well in kind of smaller samples as rookies. Jake Rogers is a decent starting catcher. He's got power. He's a really good defender. And so I just, the more I look at it, the more I find things to like about this team. And sort of what you mentioned, the division is still not good. Kansas City is not going to be a playoff team next year. Cleveland, we'll see. They'll try, I'm sure, to make another push at it, but they finished below 500 this year. And they're in all likelihood, almost certainly losing uh, one of the best managers in the majors. The White Sox, who knows, but certainly wasn't a good year for them. It doesn't look like they're trending up. And so to me, when I look at the divisional context, it feels like, okay, Minnesota is good and everybody else is questionable. And so it just sort of leaves room for Detroit to try to make a push next year and see if they can seize on that if the Twins have a down season. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of spending, uh, perhaps that could be a bit more of a midseason move. If they are close at the trade deadline, perhaps then they'd be more comfortable in spending a few bucks and bringing in um, a somewhat more higher priced player for that midseason reinforcement. So Tigers fans have not had a lot to cheer about in recent years. Hopefully things can uh, perhaps be looking up for them um, heading into this winter and into 2024. All right. Now we're going to move into the reader question portion of the podcast. And um, as always, you can send us your questions um, at mlbtrpod at gmail.com. And uh, a couple of questions opening up the mailbag here from this week. In fact, it's a two-part question here from Jeff. And uh, Jeff is focusing on the LA Dodgers. Even with the success of their minor league pitching depth, the Dodgers really need a starter or two, assuming that Clayton Kershaw resigns. Are we more likely to see them go after one of the big free agents or maybe make a trade where they send out some cash? And now the second uh, question that Jeff sent in, uh, J.D. Martinez had a great season. What is his market this offseason and should he be a priority for the Dodgers to retain? The same question to a lesser extent regarding Jason Hayward. And now the reason we lump these two uh, questions together is, well, it's because like the answer could to some extent be the same guy. And that guy is Shohei Otani. Um, even though he's not going to be pitching in 2024, he's expected to still be able to come back and play as a DH. And just the fact that LA signed Martinez to just a one-year deal, uh, that also really seemed like it was the Dodgers kind of setting the stage for their pursuit of Otani. And in Martinez's case, I think they'll kind of just let him walk in free agency, say thank you for the great season, and let him uh, take off. Yeah, I mean, I could see all that. I think that obviously Otani is your your first priority if you're the Dodgers. Now, if he signs somewhere else and Martinez is still out there, then sure, you kind of look to bring him back as a DH. His strikeouts are up um, at a career high level this year, which is a little concerning. And obviously, he's uh, getting up there in age. 
but he is hitting for more power than he has in a few seasons. This is arguably his best year, at least since 2019. Um, when we were talking about him, uh, me, myself, Steve Adams, and Tim Durkis in preparation for the, the top 50 free agent list, uh, we thought that he's at least getting two years. There's an argument for a three-year deal. I, I don't think he's going to get there, but I do expect that he'll do quite a bit better than the one year and $10 million that he took last time. Now, whether again, whether that's from the Dodgers, uh, it's probably dependent on whether or not they do land Otani. Um, I guess the rotation aspect of that question, I think, is interesting. Obviously, you mentioned it that Otani's not going to pitch next year. And I do agree with the premise that they're going to need starting pitching help. And so I'm I'm sort of intrigued by the the question as to whether you think that's likelier to come from free agency. And if they do sign Otani, do you think that they'll still pursue a top of the market starting pitcher like uh, a Yamamoto or a Jordan Montgomery? Or do you think it's more likely at that point that it comes via trade? I feel that LA is definitely going to be in the market for Yamamoto uh, just simply because they're in the market for every kind of big tier free agent to some extent, like whether that's just, you know, like as they say, like the Dodgers kind of check in on a guy or make some calls or always kind of stay on the uh, periphery, at least of the market for certain players. Um, it bears stating, though, that L.A. does not generally have like the big splashy offseason that maybe a lot of fans think they should have. Like, obviously, like they've made their share of big moves. But their offseason business usually translates as maybe perhaps making one big blockbuster signing or trade, you know, like perhaps like trading for Mookie Betts, uh, for example, or signing Freddie Freeman, signing kind of multiple big players or like, like swing multiple big blockbuster trades isn't really the Dodgers style under Andrew Friedman. So if they do manage to land Otani, then that would obviously be the headline move of the winter. Uh and perhaps, you know, like as they turn for rotation help, like it would be classic Dodgers to sign a veteran pitcher or two. Maybe it's a bit of like a reclamation project types. Uh, they've had great success with that in the past. The last winter's uh, attempt with Noah Syndergaard did not exactly uh, work out. So I could see them signing Otani and perhaps that one kind of big splash move. And then perhaps a couple of uh, like lower level uh, transactions uh, to augment what's a pretty good core of young arms, but just sort of like unproven. Yeah, I agree. I think that the reputation for the Dodgers that, okay, they kind of sign everybody and they're in on everybody and they obviously run extremely high payrolls annually, but you're right that they're, they're not big on actually making long-term signings. They kind of do targeted strikes at the top of the market for Betts and Freeman. But other than those two, uh, Chris Taylor is the only guy who has a guaranteed contract beyond next season. And so instead, more of what their MO is, is to go high annual value on guys they like and try to keep it short term. And obviously, as you said, they have the strong pitching infrastructure that they can market to the rebound candidates. So it will be interesting to see. Again, obviously, they'll be in on Otani. They'll make a run at him. We'll see uh, how that goes. But whether they get him or not, if they decide to try a, a rebound flyer on a Luis Severino or take a shot on Frankie Montas or something like that, as opposed to a top of the market starting pitcher. So just having a look ahead uh, to the Dodgers projected rotation, I think that we can count on um, on Bobby Miller being in there for sure. He's been, uh, I guess, the breakout guy of all their young arms. Walker Bueller will be back from Tommy John surgery. Um, and beyond that, you've got the group of Ryan Pepio, Michael Grove, Emmett Sheehan, uh, Gavin Stone. Uh, so that group could all be fighting for 
one or maybe two rotation spots. Probably the Dodgers would prefer it to be one. Uh, so that leaves, you know, uh, two open spots. One, obviously, Clayton Kershaw. The ball is in his court of whether he'll come back for another season in L.A. or if he might choose to retire. I guess we probably shouldn't rule out the ever-present possibility that he might finally go to the Rangers, but that would seem to be maybe third on the list at this point. Of all those young arms, uh, like Miller is the one who has stood out. And of course, like we still have an entire uh, postseason uh, right in front of us. So if one of these youngsters uh, perhaps makes a playoff roster, uh, like takes a step forward, then they can really kind of get themselves um, into the picture as well. Yeah, they definitely have talent. And uh, Dustin May, I think, could be an option later in the season. Tony Gonson, I believe, is going to miss the entire year after undergoing Tommy John surgery. But I think that May could be an option um, as well. And I do like Papio in particular, the guys that you mentioned. Uh, obviously, I think Miller is clearly uh, at the top of the group of, of young starters, but I think Papio would be the number two guy for me. So I do think they have the nucleus of a productive rotation already, but they've also are maybe the, the biggest example of them are the raise of just the attrition rate of pitching generally in no matter how many talented young starters you have, it's never enough because those guys get hurt very frequently. Uh, Lance Lynn's option, I guess we should probably just mention him uh, perhaps at least in passing. He has a club option for $18.5 million for next year. Doesn't seem like that's going to be picked up. Uh, could that be written off entirely? Yeah, I I, I don't see it. Um, you know, it was kind of a, they took a rebound flyer on Lynn because he had really good strikeout and walk numbers with the White Sox, and he was giving up a ton of homers in Chicago, but that can be sort of variable season to season, and it seemed like they were banking on that home run rate stabilizing a little bit, and it hasn't. Uh, Lynn's strikeouts are down with the Dodgers. His home runs have spiked even higher. His ERA is better than it was in Chicago, but I don't I don't think he finished the season well enough that they would consider 18.5. All right, so moving on to our next uh, reader question. It is uh, from Michael. So Michael asks, realistically, how much does management matter in where players sign as free agents? There's been a lot of discussion to the effect that players haven't been signing with the Giants because of Gabe Kapler's style. But do players really take that into account, or do they mostly follow the money? Now, uh, I should point out that neither Anthony or myself are Major League Baseball players. We've never been free agents. We've never been... Uh, pursued by teams we're both open to it um imagine if someone wants to throw even a minimum major league salary at us uh, like that'd be uh pretty fantastic but given all the factors that go into free agency i would say that who the manager is is on that list but not necessarily at the top of that list yeah i'd agree i think in general you kind of assume that free agents are going to take the best financial deal available. Normally, that's just the largest guarantee. But for some guys, that's a higher one-year salary because they want a bounce back year or something like that. Obviously, it varies player to player, right? I mean, some guys are going to decide based on geography uh, or the role that they're going to be placed in. And, you know, I think that there are sometimes specific instances where you can find where a player has had, say, uh, a brawl or some sort of dispute with another team. And it's just like, okay, clearly this guy's not going to sign with that team. But I think in general, you just kind of assume that the money is a driving factor. And if 
there are reasons to believe that in certain players' cases, that's a different story, then you sort of evaluate it at that point. Yeah, and obviously, if a player hears from ex-teammates or something of how a you know how a certain like manager isn't fun to play for, like that's obviously like a red flag, uh, like of when they're choosing a new team. And when I say not fun to play for, like whether that's for baseball reasons or personality reasons or what have you, um, I should point out that in regards to Michael's question, uh, I'm not really sure if you know, like if Gabe Kapler as a manager was really a big factor in how the Giants have or haven't been able to attract players. All you hear about Kapler from a lot of Giants players that you've heard in recent days is that he kind of lets them, you know, like kind of go on their own. And now like that could be said, you know, for better or for worse, perhaps in some cases, perhaps some players like would like a manager to be a bit more direct and hands-on. But um, could be that San Francisco's issues are just sort of more based on the team in general or how the front office approaches things in general more than Kapler himself. Yeah, I think Michael's probably referring to the sort of the Giants are very heavily matchup based. At least they were under Kapler. They did a lot of platooning and were very flexible with the pitching staff. It was like Logan Webb and Alex Cobb were their starters and everyone else was kind of patched together via openers or bullpen games. And I could see how if you're a starting pitcher, especially like a reclamation guy, that maybe you wouldn't love that. But then at the same time, they signed Shamanaya and Ross Stripling to two-year deals with opt-outs last year. And despite sort of managing the pitching staff the way that they kind of had in 2022, those guys were still willing to go there and bet on themselves to hold a rotation spot. Neither of them did it, but it didn't stop them from signing with San Francisco. I guess this sort of just spins off into a broader uh look at the manager field in general but um as of now we have four teams who have vacancies uh and that would be the giants the mets the guardians we're all kind of assuming that terry francona is going to officially uh retire and the angels as it was just announced yesterday that phil nevin would not be back for another season as manager so that's four jobs four pretty different situations uh you know like i kind of put the hypothetical to you anthony which job would you think has the most appeal? I think it's the Mets. Uh, I mean, you're getting a chance to work with David Stearns, who is a very exciting front office hire, one of the best front office executives in the game. You know, there's kind of been mixed messaging from upper level management about whether they want to push all in for 24. If they're sort of taking next year as a, we'll try to contend, but really we care about 25 as, as a start of the next contention window. But I think that, just between the payroll and the chance to work with the front office that has a track record of, of building a consistent winner in Milwaukee, that feels like the most appealing to me. I would put the Angels probably at the bottom, just given the uncertainty with Otani. But I could see sort of working. I could see a case for any of the other three as, as number one, if you feel differently. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Cleveland, obviously, I think like part of the biggest issue there is simply of how you're taking over uh, for Terry Francona, and obviously huge shoes to fill in that sense. But I don't know. Like I like I think I'm just kind of traditionally higher on the Guardians than most people. Like I just think they do a very good job of running that organization, and their just amount of seemingly just nonstop uh, young pitching always coming up through the pipeline just kind of keeps them in. Uh, perpetual contention unless you get a year like this year when uh, like too many of those guys got hurt. 
like if the Guardians could ever kind of get even league average hitting, um, as opposed to, you know, like ranking, you know, like 27th, 28th or whatever in most offensive categories, uh, they're a team who could be a real like World Series uh, contender in my view. So that could be an interesting situation for a manager to step into. But, you know, like, again, like part of the reason of how they've been so successful over the last decade, of course, could be because of Terry Franklin himself. So his uh, departure could have some impact, like certainly of how these young players um, are incorporated into the big league roster. Yeah, that's fair. I'm actually curious, did any of the managerial changes take you by surprise, the ones we've seen so far? Not really. I mean, uh, to be frank, it seemed like Nevin was always kind of working on borrowed time a bit. If anything, perhaps it was even a little surprising how he came back for this season. Um, and in Francona's case, his health problems have been a question mark for a few years now. And it was almost kind of a just like just matter of time before he decided to hang it up. In terms of surprising managerial vacancies, I guess, like I guess the true surprises would happen if if any others open up. Uh, perhaps the Padres and Bob Melvin, uh, we spoke a little bit about this on the podcast last week, but that situation still seems like it might be a little unresolved um, in spite of the uh, vote of confidence that was given uh, by ownership just the other day. And of course, the Brewers and Craig Council. And just speaking of the Mets there, obviously the connection between Stearns and Council is long and of whether Council will perhaps take a year off for managing or whether he'll stay in Milwaukee or if perhaps he'll look for a new challenge with the Mets. And that's certainly a big question hanging over this Brewers uh, playoff run. Yeah, they're going to be really fascinating because it's you have the council uncertainty and then you also have just the fact that they're not on borrowed time, I would say, but you have Woodruff and Burns and Adames who are all headed into their final year of arbitration control. And you never really know with Milwaukee what direction they'll go just as they try to manage payroll constraints and sort of through that guardians raise thing of being willing to make difficult trades of veterans as they try to continually bring in young talent and make sure that they're consistently competitive. And for fans who didn't see the breaking news yesterday, uh, Brandon Woodruff will not be pitching um, in the wild card series. He has a shoulder injury. So that already like right off the bat is some more bad news for the Brewers chances even up getting out of the first round. So we'll have to see um, how things play out uh, between the Brewers and the Diamondbacks. And that wraps things up for this week's edition of the podcast. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for the fill-in work for the last couple of weeks. Been a nice job. Well, thank you. As as I said last week, as long as I could keep the train from going uh, completely off the rails, I consider this to be a big success. <laughs> <laughs> And just to wrap things up uh, with a reminder that you can keep reading us all at MLBTradeRumors.com, where our off-season analysis is uh, starting to kick into high gear now. We've got all of the news on the managerial front or possibly some front office changes. Um, our off-season outlook series is in full swing and we'll be having posts on all 30 teams. I think we've got five or six of them up now and more are being written as we speak. And plus, we have a lot more as we get closer to free agency and the official start of the offseason. So enjoy the playoffs, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors.com. 